Hey guys, welcome to Van City. My name's Josh. If we haven't met, I work with a team of men and women who are doing our darndest to uh, lead this particular church. Um, but uh, years before this gig, I actually spent more than a decade traveling around the world in a van with a group of musicians. And overall, it, it was a wonderful time. Uh, but we were young and emotionally unhealthy, <laughs> so there were often arguments and petty disagreements and bickering and grudges and passive-aggressive comments. You can imagine what it's like for a bunch of young men to live in a van together. One evening, uh, we were coordinating our schedule for the following day when someone said uh, out of nowhere, well, you know, whatever time it is that we need to leave, tell Josh it's an hour earlier so that we'll actually be on time. And I realized that I had garnered a, a reputation for tardiness. And I also realized that, though this certainly wasn't the most mature way to confront me about the, the issue, I had selfishly inconvenienced everyone with my habit of being the last one in the van every day. So I decided to change things. I made no formal announcement of my repentance, but I set the alarm on my, you know, my Nokia cell phone uh, an hour earlier, that awful like boop, boop, it was, uh, it was great. Um, I took my showers at night, I packed before I went to sleep, all that stuff. And for the year that followed, this is a true story, I was faithfully first person in the van uh, at every scheduled time of departure, give or take once or twice. And then about a year after I had mended my ways, we were again on the road, again resolving like a scheduling conflict, conflict and I spoke up to suggest a time frame, time frame in one of my Bandmates spoke up to mock me for my suggestion. They said, well, what's the difference? You'll be the last one in the van either way. And then everyone laughed in agreement. Oh, yeah, he's the worst. He's always laughing, you know, that kind of thing. Now, of course, I was well aware of the effort that I had expended to put my legacy of tardiness to death, but no one else had seemed to notice, even though I had gone on for more than a year at that point. And that may seem unfair. It, it certainly did to me in the moment. But think about it. I had an inconvenienced an entire group of people on a semi-regular basis for years. And sure, I'd changed, but the memory of my old habit hadn't simply vanished. It had shaped the way my friends understood me. It had shaped their ability and their willingness to forgive me. And there's this expression, uh, maybe you've heard it, it has a number of crass variations, but it goes something like, if you build a thousand bridges and then kick one puppy, you'll be forever remembered as a puppy kicker rather than a bridge builder. Uh, and the point is that negative memories are very sticky. In fact, some studies suggest that negative words and experiences are likely to take on immediate psychological resonance. Someone says or does something negative to you and your brain requires no time to process that information, while positive and kind encounters require about 15 seconds of mental processing to actually make an impression in your mind. And sure, you could argue that this is because we're by nature petty or spiteful or negative, but there's actually more to it than that. Um, turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We are nearing the end of a series on the practice of forgiveness. And throughout this series, we've been working with a definition of what forgiveness is from our friend Dr. Gary Brashears. He says it like this. Forgiveness is the personal act of releasing someone who has sinned against me from my right to pay them back for their offense. Instead of reciprocating the pain I have been given, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. 
Now, it begs the question again and again, why should disciples of Jesus do this? First, there's the easy answer, which is because God has forgiven us. We forgive as we have been forgiven. What Cam was talking about one second ago is that this is... This idea of discipleship is emulating Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. But the second reason is because forgiveness uh, is actually quintessential to our healthiness as human beings. Unforgiveness is a bitter root that grows up to defile many in the language of the New Testament, meaning not just you, but the people around you. It is destructive. And at the heart of our unwillingness to forgive is a deep-seated forgetfulness. We, as disciples of Jesus, have been grafted into God's story, and we are now God's people. We are God's children in the language of the scriptures. There are things that God has done for us, things that God says are true of us, a future that God has spoken over us, and we forget. We forget that God declares us blameless, and so we live under the heavy burden of guilt and shame. We forget that God has rescued us, and so we live in fear of tomorrow. We forget that God has forgiven us, and we live as those unwilling to forgive other people. This forgetfulness has been tragically lodged in the heart of God's people for thousands of years, reaching backward into the Garden of Eden, if you know the story in which God tells his very first image bearers, eat this and you will die, it's an interesting story, only to find that they have been led astray by, of all things, a whispering snake who says, did God really say, eat this and you will die? And they forget. And so much, much later, Moses, before his imminent death, delivers a speech to God's stubborn, forgetful people, and he pleads with them saying this. Look down at Deuteronomy chapter 8, and let's read beginning with verse 1. Ooh, that's scary sounding, but kind of interesting. Deuteronomy 8 verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised as an oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So Moses is reminding Israel of who God is and the things that God has done in the recent past and what God says is true. He's inviting Israel to allow this purposeful act of remembering to produce in them obedience to God. He goes on, verse 6, observe the commands of Yahweh God. Walk in obedience to him and revere him. For Yahweh God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise Yahweh God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget Yahweh God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and decrees that I am giving you this day. 
Now, uh, in Hebrew, the word remember is far more robust than our traditional English sense of the exact same word. In Hebrew, to remember is an active work of the will. It refers to bringing something to bear in your mind and in your heart in such a way that your actions are affected as a result. And adversely, to forget is more than just kind of a, a slip of the mind. It refers to a painful and devastating act of negligence. And as the story of the Old Testament goes on, Moses says to Israel, please remember God. Do not forget God. And this is the pessimistic refrain we read again and again. Israel did not remember Yahweh, their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. On this forgetfulness that permeates our history, author L. Gregory Jones writes this, The rich forget the poor. Adulterers forget their spouses. The proud forget their place. And disciples forget their master. Theology teaches us that our memory is compromised from the start. That is to say, remembering and forgetting is not simply a matter of choice. They are capacities within us that need to be redeemed together with the whole creation. Now, we don't really have a tremendous amount of insight into how complex an idea Moses was proposing to Israel before he died, meaning we don't know if when Moses invited Israel to remember Yahweh, was he proposing a simple kind of cause and effect type of thing? Hey, remember God so that you don't mess up. Or was Moses privy to the complex way God has designed our brains and thus the massive formational importance of this idea of memory? Because the way we remember and forget certain things and in certain ways plays a foundational way in the way that we are formed as a people. And there are at least two broad contributors to humanity's collective forgetfulness, as it were. The first is theological in nature. If you know the story of the scripture, we are born into a broken world. Each of us is broken in our own unique way. We are bent away from the heart of God and toward the things that destroy us and other people and creation itself. And the second culprit behind our great forgetting is all that we learn along the roads of our lives, meaning our upbringings and our families of origin and our relationships and the trauma that we endure, our culture, the stories that we believe. All of this acts as a formation machine that teaches us the great art of selective memory. We see and recall what we would like to see and recall, whether it is painful or selfishly beneficial or some mix of the two. And so we take up the busy work of forgetting God, forgetting other people, even forgetting our own sin and shortcomings that it might inconvenience us a bit less. And we do this with surprising and often subconscious efficiency on a regular basis. On the first evening of this brief series on forgiveness, we established the fact that forgiveness does not include forgetting. We are not machines, uh, though we are a forgetful people. We cannot simply select files for erasure at whim, nor would it be a healthy endeavor to pursue if we could do that. And thus, the old platitude of forgive and forget is not only impossible, it neglects one of the most important dimensions of the forgiveness process, which is our memories. And memory can be a really tricky thing. You know, often we remember what we'd like to forget and forget what we'd like to remember, or we do either thing or both subconsciously without realizing we're doing it at all. The human brain is an impossibly complicated thing. And of course, you can't remember everything you experience in the first place. And even more complicated still, your brain trains itself to remember and to forget in unique ways over time. 
This is an idea that neuroscience today refers to as neuroplasticity. This is uh, based on a scientific premise called Hebb's axiom, which states that neurons which fire together wire together. So here's an explanation of that from Dr. Kurt Thompson. He says, neurons that repeatedly activate in a particular pattern are statistically more likely to fire in that same pattern the more they are activated. Once the initial neurons in a network fire, there is a very high probability that the related neurons will also activate and move along the same bioelectrical pathway to the end of that network. Stay with it. The more frequently those patterns have been fired, the most easily they will fire in that same pattern in the future. Meaning, listen, this is what it means. That's why you may immediately recall the ingredients and steps to preparing spaghetti, which you make every week, but need to consult the cookbook when preparing a holiday dish you haven't made in years. Or, if you prefer an analogy, <laughs> uh, I've read it described this way. Imagine that the billions of synapses in your brain, those uh, junctions between nerve cells, imagine them as like a dense and complicated jungle. So you must traverse this complex and dangerous jungle terrain with uh, a machete to clear the way. And that machete is your thought life. What you meditate on, what you imagine, what you fill your mind with, what you remember and think about. And as you think, you are uh, hacking a trail through the jungle, so to speak. And thinking the same thing repeatedly is like doing extra work to clear a particular area of the trail. The more you think about it, the clearer the trail becomes, like making spaghetti every week, which apparently this person does. Now, as you hike this jungle again and again and again, you will arrive repeatedly at an area that has been thoroughly cleared, and you will take this route without hesitation because it's the clearer route. It, it may be the more dangerous or destructive route, but it's the clear one, so your mind goes in that direction. Now, it logically follows that what we've learned from science about neuromapping neuro is both good and bad, meaning it's actually quite good that I can remember my children's names without effort, as well as like a fairly length, lengthy index of their personality traits and their quirks and their likes and dislikes. This has been mapped out in my brain and I don't have to think about it, it just happens like that. It's bad, on the other hand, that I am often stuck in patterns of thinking and behavior that are toxic or emotionally unhealthy and destructive to both myself and to the people around me because these things I have also mapped out in my brain. And it absolutely applies to the way that I form resentments, the way that I navigate trauma, and thus shapes the way I do or do not release other people in forgiveness. So think about that silly story from the beginning of the night. These guys had learned from memory again and again and again, this guy's always late, so it becomes quite difficult to suddenly remember everything differently, even though my behavior had changed. All of this makes the person that we are today a complicated tangle of memories and experiences and mental and spiritual formation for better and for worse. So tonight, I'm going to propose that there are times in which, in order to accomplish forgiveness, we will need certain memories to be healed. Now, before we get to how, we need to talk about something called the imagination. We talked about this at length in our series on prayer, but it always bears repeating. Tonight, let's do kind of a truncated review that will help us with this week's practice. And I want to begin by inviting each of you into something we've done once before, which is a bit of an experiment in the memory. The first step is an easy one. I'm going to pose a simple question, and I want you to answer it mentally. You don't have to yell or anything this time. Um, uh, what's in the back seat of your car at the moment? If you don't have a car, think of the last car in which you took a ride. Got it in your head? Now, I want you to consider an interesting secondary question, 
which is, how did you do that? Meaning, how did you do the mental exercise of retrieving the answer to the question, what's in the backseat of your car? Now, obviously, there's some kind of technical explanation about the functionality of the brain, but our interest is, interest is in what you experienced when you accomplished that thought experiment. Thanks to neuroscience, once again, we know that some of you, statistically, experienced an image in your mind of the backseat of your car. Some of you saw the backseat as if it was from the vantage point of someone sitting, sitting in the front of the car, looking backward. Others saw the backseat looking in through the rear passenger window. For some of you, the experience was a still picture that just flashed for a moment and then was gone. Others of you may have saw the backseat as if it were captured on video. The image actually moved around. Some of you may have even interacted with the contents of the backseat mentally, meaning you kind of moved them around in your mind to remember what was under a coat or a package or a mess, you know, whatever. A small portion of you, uh, statistically, may maybe even in a room this small, may have actually experienced some kind of smell memory of the backseat of your car. This could be good or bad, depending. The point is that none of you experienced anything like a black screen in your head that displayed strings of information. You didn't read from a teleprompter in your mind, backseat contains A, B, and C, because your brain just doesn't work that way. That's not the way God has designed your mind. Instead, you experienced your car's back seat. Your brain replicated and represented reality, though it was in some sense all in your head, but it was accurate, at least to some degree. The contents of your car, it stands to reason, are not terribly emotional, I hope. Even so, every one of you understands that your brain has the power to access an emotional storehouse of memory and experience. So let's try that next. Take a moment right now and bring to mind an event from the past that you find particularly pleasant. It might be like, I don't know, a vacation. For me, it's always Christmas immediately. Some meaningful moment with a loved one or a noteworthy achievement, some specific happy memory. Go ahead and think of it now and hold on to it for just a second. Once again, some of you are seeing pictures, still images that flash for a moment. Maybe some of you are seeing something like a video. Some of you might hear sounds in your imagination or even smell odors. A few of you may even be representing in your mind something that you tasted, if you like food quite a bit. Um, some of you may feel a very vague memory of happiness that you experienced. Others of you are, luck are lucky enough to have a brain that's releasing chemicals right now that allows you to re-experience that happiness just by accessing the memory. It's a beautiful thing. For others, it's somehow both good and bad, bittersweet, and some of you know why, maybe others of you have absolutely no clue. No two people represent a pleasant memory exactly the same way. Um, so to illustrate, let's pose a few questions for your consideration. Again, answer these mentally. <laughs> did you experience the memory as visual only, or did it have sound in your head? Could you hear something in your imagination? Was it a still frame? Or was it a series of moving pictures? Was it both, one after the other? Did the visual fade, or were you able to hold on to it for a moment? Was the memory in color, or was the memory in black and white? Statistically, about half of you probably, yeah, about half of you in a room this size are associated to your memory, meaning you experience, as, you experience it as if you're looking through your own eyes. And the other half of you are probably disassociated from your memory, meaning you see yourself in the memory 
as though you're beholding it from a third-person perspective. And of course, your memories are never perfect recreations of any given event. Your brain makes certain decisions about what's important in reconstructing a moment or event, focusing in on certain details and ignoring other details altogether. And you rarely get any conscious say in that process. So let's have one more experiment before we move on. I want you to think about a person that you love very much. Just bring them to mind, a person that you love very much for just a moment. Now, when you thought of a person that you love, none of you accomplished this by reciting information about the person in your mind. Instead, you imaginatively represent them in your mind in an instant, just like that. Just by having someone say, think of someone you love, someone was represented in your mind. You can even provoke your emotions with this mental representation by imagining the person doing something kind or loving toward you. Go ahead, enjoy. Um, or adversely, you can imagine them being unkind or cruel to you and provoke your emotions a different way. Don't try that. It's fine. Leave that one out. So if I imagine my wife, uh, Abby, I don't begin by reading sentences from a screen in my mind. Abby has red hair. She was born in Portland. She loves toast, you know, and on down the list. These pieces of data absolutely contribute to my overall affection for Abby, for sure, but our relationship has not been shaped by data alone. It is a complicated amalgamation built from years of experiences and memories, both good and bad, simple and profound. And so when I bring her to my mind, I don't read strings of information, I represent her in my imagination. And here, this word, imagination, has nothing to do with fantasy or make-believe. Imagination is the mind's unique ability to evoke powerful formational images of things that are not physically present. In this sense, the imagination is not something that takes us away from the truth, at least not always, but rather it has the ability to enable a powerful experience of the truth. Your imagination can represent images of things that are not physically present in order to answer a simple question. What's in the backseat of your car? Your imagination does the work for you. It can re-energize emotional experiences from the past, for better or for worse. It can even shape your relationship with a loved one or with a person who has hurt you or with a particular memory, all by simply representing something in your mind that is not physically there. All that to say, Experience and neuroscience both tell us that we get to memory by way of the imagination. And this is precisely why we can go about healing memories using the imagination as well, by bringing past wounds and people who have offended us to our minds using our imagination, we can invite God's spirit to redeem even our memories of past hurts. Because The effects of a broken world use our memories and our imaginations against us on a regular basis. This is why so many of us continue to reel from the effect of a single event that may have lasted only moments, but continues to devastate us years later, because the memory is a horrible open wound. For others, there has been a terrible conditioning that has happened in our lives, repeated abuses or often ongoing circumstances that haunt in perpetuity. But this has to do with more than horrific trauma in the overt sense. Perhaps you're someone who did not grow up in an abusive environment per se, but you grew up in a context where the people around you regularly failed to love you well. And as a result, it has become a struggle to trust other people. Forgiveness doesn't come easy. 
you've learned a calloused means of self-preservation. Even the failures of the generation prior to your generation can permeate and affect subsequent generations in traumatic ways. On this reality, L. Gregory Jones writes this, in situations where forgiveness is needed, our memories converge to shape our attitudes and postures toward other people. How can we move toward reconciliation with former enemies if we are held captive by the memory of their violence toward us or our people? How can we live together with those we've hurt if the pain of our injustice to them is always on our minds? How can we navigate daily life with people who have hardened their hearts in self-defense or self-denial? And how can we guard against doing so ourselves? No, we cannot simply forget but when our memories have become a burden, the practice of forgiveness does invite us to learn how to remember our pasts differently. And of course, the entire story of the Bible attests to the devastating effects of our fallen memories, our tendency to forget what we ought to remember and remember what we ought to forget. And yet, we are still the people of God, which means that we are a people of redemption. God has reached into the messiness of our stories, dirtied his hands with our failures, and he has redeemed us. And this includes our past. God redeems our past, but he does not erase it. And so we're not after the unattainable ideal of erasing memories altogether, forgive and forget, but rather the spirit-filled work the spirit-filled work of learning to remember the past differently, not as an illusion, not as a charade to trick us, but that we might grasp the beautiful weight of God's ability to forgive and thus our ability and calling to do the same thing. I think of one of my favorite lines in all of the scriptures. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, no Yahweh because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh himself. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Again, this from L. Gregory Jones. If the Lord can cast our sins into a sea of forgetfulness, if God himself can choose to forget, might it be possible for God to give us the grace to genuinely heal some of the memories that haunt and paralyze us so we can really remember everything well? Healing memories is not about erasing the memory of a sin done to us, but rather about taking up those memories of sin in the past and making them into a shield that guards us against sin in the future. This is a very different thing than some effort to simply expunge a memory and its effects from our minds altogether because we remember full well and we are changed by the things that happen to us, but we refuse to allow this change to become one of lasting destruction not for ourselves and not for the people around us. We will remember what has happened to us and we will choose to forgive and we will take up the memory, subvert it, and use that memory for good. After all, the great hope for disciples of Jesus is not that God is going to erase eons of a universe in pain. Instead, he is going to heal the cosmos. And of course, like the work of forgiveness in the broad sense, the healing of memories is often a detailed process rather than a singular event. And we walk together, arm in arm, as the community of God in that process, not as solitary drifters left to wander alone. 
So before we end tonight, let's talk a bit about the pragmatic stuff for the week ahead. When your community meets this week, you'll head to practicingtheway.org together. If you're not in a community yet or you want to give this a shot, by all means, head there, get some friends together, and go for it. Our next stage in the practice of forgiveness, we've taken from a fellow named Everett Worthington. He's a disciple of Jesus who's also a PhD, a psychologist that has spent more than three decades studying the psychology of forgiveness as a disciple of Jesus. And he proposes a process called uh, REACH. This is something that you'll parse out for several days or even weeks, give yourself time, give yourself space to try it out. You don't have to work it all out in one session or anything like that. But when you do, it will look a bit like this. First, you'll sit down, you'll ask the Spirit of God to steer and direct your imagination for good, and then you'll bring to mind a past hurt. This is what, uh, this is the R in reach is recall. Recall a past hurt. You'll picture it in your imagination, identify the emotions surrounding that event. For some, this will likely be a very painful thing, but remember, the purpose here is to move beyond the place of pain and into a place of freedom. Now, if you're working through considerable trauma, you'll want to do the next step with a counselor or with a therapist or just with a friend that you can really, really trust. Uh, the point is that this is not something that you'll want to do alone if the trauma is really great. Uh, we do actually have a list of recommended counselors and therapists available, many of whom take several different types of insurance and whom we know and trust. Uh, we'll actually have that list emailed to all of your community leaders this week as well, right, Camp? So they'll have it if you want to ask them. Um, but after you recall the hurt, the event in your imagination, you will ask God to give you empathy for the person that hurt you. Invite God's Spirit to reveal ways in which you might empathize with the person who has hurt you, with their story and their brokenness. And this is not condoning or excusing away hurtful or sinful behavior. It's the effort to remember your offender as a broken person that is made in God's image, much like yourself. Uh, a friend told me today about an experience they had in an exercise like this one. They had been wounded in a friendship, and some time later they were doing an imaginative prayer exercise, and they invited God's Spirit to bring back to their mind uh, the event that had caused the pain. And once there, God's Spirit used this friend of mine's imagination to show them a different scenario, meaning they remembered it, but then things began to play out differently. The exchange went differently. Their offender was vulnerable, and they were actually able to pray together. Now, they knew full well that this wasn't what actually happened. It wasn't like their mind was being reset or something like that. Um, but by inviting God's Spirit to revisit this memory, God's Spirit activated empathy in this friend of mine, and they were empowered by God to forgive this friend of theirs. Thus, next... After you recall the hurt, you ask God's Spirit for empathy, you will release that person in forgiveness. Now, what does this look like exactly? Uh, does that mean you just simply think the words, I forgive you, or do you say them out loud? Uh, Dr. Worthington actually suggests what he calls an altruistic gift, meaning you'll use your imagination, bring to mind a time in your own life in which you have been given forgiveness, and you'll remember the kindness and the grace that you were shown, the weight of your offense having been lifted off of you. And you will consider that moment as a gift that was given to you by the person you had hurt. And then with that gift in your mind, you will turn and offer it to the person who has hurt you. Next, you will commit 
to the public act of forgiveness. This might mean just documenting that moment in your journal journal, or reaching out to the person to have a conversation about your decision to forgive, if that makes sense or if that's healthy. The idea is that you are working to cement that act of forgiveness in a time and in a place. And then finally, you will hold on to forgiveness. Remember something we've said many times throughout the series is that forgiveness is rarely a one-time event. It's more often a process. And during the journey of that process, you may need to return to the previous work that you've done, the empathy, the gift, the commitment, and you will choose to forgive and choose to forgive again and choose to forgive again. The idea is that by using your spirit-led, God-given imagination, God can enable you to remember your pain differently. And by doing so, you can walk the road of forgiveness well. While in search of a story that uh, might exemplify this idea, I read about a Rwandan woman named Maggie. In 1994, if you uh, know anything about this horrible time in history, uh, ongoing tension between the Hutu and Tutsi people of Rwanda erupted in a full-scale genocide of the Tutsi people, leading to the deaths of as many um, as a million men, women, and children in just 100 days, uh, mostly by way of machete. Now, Maggie was herself a disciple of Jesus, um, working as a church secretary in her village. And when the violence began to escalate, the Tutsi people in Maggie's village were driven mad with hatred against the Hutu attackers who were responsible for the initiation of the genocide. And so the Tutsi people began to seek out and slaughter any Hutu people hiding amongst, amongst them in Maggie's village. Many of those Hutu people had taken refuge in the church where Maggie worked. And Maggie, when they came and when they found them, she pleaded for their lives and she was tied to a chair and made to watch as many of her friends were killed before her eyes. Just a few hours after the violence ended, children of the victims began to crawl out from their hiding places. And that day, Maggie made a decision that she would adopt as many orphan children as necessary, more than 60 of them as her own kids. And she founded the House of Peace, giving shelter to more than 20,000 orphans in the years ahead. Eventually, the House of Peace became a village unto itself. Now it offers medical care and education and job training and communal togetherness to thousands of kids and young adults in the area. And on the very site of the massacre itself, Maggie built this, a swimming pool. (laughs) Now that awful place has been transformed into a place of joy, and togetherness. I mean, a swimming pool is really fun. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are in pool enthusiasts. If you have one, invite me over this summer. Um, now, the place of pain has become a hub of life for, life-giving, transforming forgiveness and peace, a place of joy and happiness and laughter. And of course, the pool doesn't erase the memory of what happened, certainly not for Maggie, who saw it, nor for those who have been victimized by the violence on into the next generations. But now, the memory itself of that place has been transformed, covering over a place of shame with a place of beauty. And isn't this what God does in each of our stories? He transforms the ugly, the tragic, the shameful, into a story of redemption. And I believe he can do the same even of our memories, where a place of violence and trauma and despair becomes a place of joy and peace and beauty. 
And I believe he can do the same of even our past hurts and the memories that haunt us. May we learn to remember differently and to forgive well as we follow Jesus together. Would you guys mind standing with me as we pray and invite God's spirit to speak before we worship with songs again?